Hey you, you're listening to Sloancast, your one-stop shop deep dive where we discuss anything and everything about the greatest band of all time, Andrew Scott, Patrick Pentland, Chris Murphy, and Jay Ferguson, collectively known as Sloan. Uh, we are your fellow superfan hosts. I'm Rob. This is Ken. Ken, how's it going, buddy? Not going to lie. Pretty excited. Yeah. I just mentioned that there were four members of this band. One of those members is the guest uh, on our show this, uh, this episode. What do you think of that? Looking forward to diving into it. Yeah, we hope that this is a nice surprise for you, uh, the listener. Uh, you know, we've had a ton of awesome guests and a lot of talk about different albums and stuff, and it is blowing our minds collectively that this was uh, a thing that just happened. And uh, so we are excited to just cut the BS and get right to the amazing interview with the one and only, ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Scott. Yeah, I just wanted to say thanks for doing this, man. Really appreciate it. It's great to see you. And uh, how you been? Uh, you know, like everybody else on the planet Earth, a little tired of this hamster wheel. Yeah, yeah but comparatively yeah. uh, to a lot of people, I've been pretty good. Yeah, um, same. I'm healthy. I'm not sick. Knocking on wood, I'm uh, able to <laughs> able to keep busy and and keep my keep my brain occupied and. You know, I'm just glad I don't have really small kids. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're kind of both in that boat. I've got a three-year-old and Clara, what, Ken, Clara is almost one or she's, just a little yeah, bit she, No, she's, she's 14 months, so it's in the turbo, yeah, yeah. turbo phase of development right now. Yeah. So it's pretty intense. <laughs> we're, we're very fortunate in my house. I've got an, an almost 19-year-old daughter and a giant 17-year-old son and they're you know i feel not only do i feel terrible for everyone and especially those who've lost relatives or whatever but i feel the worst for the teenagers of the world yeah yeah like it's such a shitty time for them it's so fucking awful can we swear yeah. on this yeah you totally. gotta be swear. it's yeah. We were dropping f-bombs left and right so feel okay. free yeah i thought it'd be fun for me personally like I'm so fascinated by the music of the band and yours specifically, obviously, not only as my favorite drummer and probably the greatest drummer ever, but just in terms of being a songwriter and guitar player. Um, so to sort of go back to the beginning a little bit, I don't know if you if you mind maybe just filling us on filling us in a little bit, kind of on sort of some of the basics, like wh- where were you born and you know mom and dad and um, you know that kind of thing. Yeah, I was born in Ottawa, Ontario, on November fifteenth, nineteen sixty-seven, and uh, my folks—they moved around quite a bit before I was born. I have two older sisters that I'm very close with. They and they live in Halifax. Mm-hmm. Um, we moved to Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, in nineteen seventy-seven or something. And, um, you know, I had a very, very normal, quote, unquote, uh, childhood. Uh, had a lot of friends, did a lot of fun stuff, and and didn't, never got into trouble. Like, I wasn't a, uh, I wasn't a risk taker as a, as a kid. Um, my, my mom, who's still with us she's out in in chester around chester nova scotia she was mm-hmm. always kind of like a very 
supportive mother for for whatever I wanted to try or attempt. Like when the band kind of started taking off, she was she was so so with it and a hundred percent behind behind me taking that risk or whatever. My dad <laughs> was a he was a naval architect, uh, Scott first generation Scottish immigrant from right. Black, moved here in the fifties. Um, and he, in 1982, he, he dropped out of a heart attack. I was 14 years old and I was one who found him and I had to, I had to call, you know, 911, get put on hold in 1982. 911 was pretty new, I think. I was out. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, I had to call my mom at work and anyway, that was a, that was the most traumatic, uh, kind of lane shift for me yeah. early on um and my dad he was a he was a great self-taught jazz musician drums piano guitar so obviously i learned and uh acquired everything from him um no question he was also a, a, an incredibly uh good drafts person drawer painter mm-hmm. so uh, it's you know there's the acorn did not fall far from my family tree in terms of my uh, early influences and stuff like that. And anyway, you know, uh, my, my, my mom was in her my mom was in her thirties when my dad passed away, which is just kind right. of my own to me, yeah. right? So she was like she 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 met an, another guy like three years later and they're still together today and and god bless them yeah Uh, he's a great guy and uh you know i could i could go into a lot of great (laughs) personal family detail but that might get a little boring right (laughs) you you mentioned you mentioned your father being a jazz musician was i mean at what point did you really then start honing your craft per se and was that direct learning from your father or was it more just learning by osmosis um a little bit of both i mean it was a lot of uh learning by just listening there was always music played in my house always and it was always jazz music my dad right. despised rock and roll right and you know i loved it but i also loved all the big band stuff that he would play or the buddy rich records and uh, gene krupa's and the dave bubecks and stuff mm-hmm. like that pretty it wasn't it wasn't uh it, it wasn't a deep like coltrane or miles davis upbringing you know like it was, it was a lot of fairly pale jazz musicians for lack of a better term so i, okay. I did my own homework as as life went on and discovered all the all the real greats that weren't just white men right there was never not music played in my house as a kid and although i i secretly you know i got into metal when i was like 13 12 13 right discovered van halen and that kind of my sister introduced me to van halen and that was like game changer for me right um and then i branched off into uh you know british new wave of british heavy metal like tanks of the world and the tigers of pantangs and 
obviously motorheads and, and sure. all that stuff. Sure. You never listened to it with my, with my dad in the room. Cause he would just be like, turn that shit off. <laughs> so I'd have to go, have to go on my own and, and do my own personal studies. When did the, when did the affinity for hip hop start? Cause I mean, if I, if I recall correctly, your first real formal musical act was at the Dartmouth High School talent show in a in a hip hop trio. That's true, but it wasn't Dartmouth High. It was QEH Queen Elizabeth oh, High. Okay, all right, my bad. It's the no, it's all right. I moved from I, I did go to Dartmouth High. I was on the five year program in high school, so I did grade twelve twice. Right, and when my when my mom remarried around uh, eighty five or whatever, we we moved to Halifax. Um. And then I started attending Queen Elizabeth High School, and all through high school I played basketball. I played basketball and hockey, and all you know, I was such a an, an, uh, a jock on one hand. But I would be I would be skateboarding to school, listening to like pusshead compilations, and right. and then I was introduced to hip hop in like nineteen eighty four with with my basketball teammates and i was blown away instantly um first time i went to new york city was was when i was at, at nascad nova scotia right. college of design in like 1987 or something um because nascad used to have a loft that down in like around canal street and broadway hmm. students could go and stay for free it was pretty awesome and I discovered the uh, ninety-eight point seven Kiss FM uh, DJ Red Alert show. DJ Red Alert. And I would just I would make tapes of of the show every time I had the chance. And I had all these. I had tons of these compilation tapes that were so fucking awesome. Yeah. They all got stolen out of a van owned by a, a deceased friend, Dave Schellenberg, who was a bass player for a band called the Jellyfish Babies. Right when I lived with those guys, when I first kind of moved to Toronto. Right. And they all got, all the red alert tapes got stolen. Is it true that you were a DJ also in Halifax in your late teens when you were just starting at NASCAD? Yeah. I worked as a DJ first at a club called Cabbage Town, which in Halifax uh, during the eighties, it was, it was one of maybe two quote alternative dance clubs. Okay. It really, it was a. I first had a job as a waiter, waiting tables, and I make a make a long convoluted story. I got the job initially through my sister Christine, mm-hmm. who also was there as a waiter. Um, and her boyfriend at the time was a DJ, a guy named Adam Cavill. Anyway, Adam. Adam was going to quit and I'd been waiting for maybe six months. And basically he was like, do you want to try this? And I kind of, I, I, I knew instantly how to beat mix and stuff. Right. Obviously it was all vinyl sure. uh, in the eighties. And I kind of just took to it really naturally. Um, and the whole, the whole idea was basically if it's a Friday or Saturday night, obviously there's maybe, 10 songs that you have to play 
that you maybe sure. don't necessarily want to hear yourself, but you got to right. do it to, to cram the dance floor. Right. But other than that, you could bring you just bring in your own records, play whatever the hell you want, and hope to either whatever turn somebody on to something that they maybe never heard before, or or just play the music you want to listen to. And right. Don't really care. Nobody else wants to listen to it. So what what would like an Andrew Scott set list from, you know, 1987, what would that consist of? There was a lot of, a lot of, uh, overlap. Like this was also the, the it was the early, very early VHS video. Like they'd have these shitty four, like tube television monitors around yeah their dance floor and you could play a video every once in a while right and i remember that they would have like there was a period where i was listening to a lot of like uh difficult listening i guess some people call it like the like the young gods and and uh Leibach and <laughs> kind of like really really aggro uh male music and I learned I learned pretty quickly that that was uh, that was gonna have a short shelf life, right? But I would play, you know, whatever I'd play, I would play the Doors. If I had to go to the bathroom, I'd put on L.A. Woman because I think it was like twelve. <laughs> I would play like, you know, Prince, a Prince tune, and try and mix in. Uh, uh, the Beastie Boys, and then fucking a, a Swans song or something like just a stupid mishmash of looking back. It was fun as hell. I got ten bucks an hour. Okay, not bad to, for the eighties. For the eighties, I was amazing. I paid for my first year of tuition off of my wages of DJing. Wow. Yeah, it was incredible. And how cool is it? I mean, to fast forward in time a little bit, this came out in April 98, but the issue was May 98. You got yourself on the cover of Chart, and you have Chuck D's name is on your face. Amazing. <laughs> Isn't that one of those funny little things that happens in life? Yeah. You know, I saw, I went to see Chuck D speak at Convocation Hall in 1988, I think. Okay. And it was incredible. The guy is so, so intelligent and commands such a presence. Like, he was. He was another, as as Van Halen was for me, Public Enemy. Like when I got into hip hop, early hip hop and stuff like that, like EPMD and and uh, Cool Modi and, and whatever, like even that uh, Herbie Hancock Rocket shit. Mm. When Public Enemy came around, that was like an entirely different level. Like so many things, and I got this. Two in in uh, in Dartmouth at the Dartmouth Sportsplex, and that was a uh, pretty life changing. Yeah, and was that the show where there were some other guys there too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Am I am I right to assume that the the pirate's hat uh, is often a tip to Public Enemy, perhaps? A direct nod to Chuck D. Yeah, yeah, uh. I love it. I thought maybe Parrish Smith, but okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Amazing. So you mentioned NASCAD. Um, maybe we can go off on a little tangent towards towards the art college. Very important institution in Atlantic Canada. Um, maybe very important in Canada as a whole. Can you maybe just t- sort of describe the atmosphere in NASCAD in the late 80s, early 90s? What kind of people were moving in and out of there? How was the scene like? Uh, yeah, I mean, NASCAD in the, in the 70s, late 60s, <laughs> 70s more specifically, was really uh, well-known around the world sure. as one of as one of the leading kind of conceptual art schools out there. And it was in this little weird pocket of Eastern Canada that nobody really knew much about. Um, when I got there in the eighties, it was just kind of when it was starting to really lose a lot of its, a lot of the, the, the game changer professors and, and faculty sure. that, that were there in the fifties and seventies who, who, brought it from this little colloquial provincial art school to this world-renowned um, modern art school. And I was really lucky to to work and study with the two, two of the main players, Gary uh, Neil Kennedy, who was a past president, and Gerald Ferguson, who was a studio painting instructor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't when I, when I went to NASCAD, I, I honestly knew, I knew I wanted to go to, to art school, like in high school. What do you want to, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be an artist. Mm-hmm. I knew that from a very early age. Um, what I didn't know was how challenging and tricky a career choice can be. Um, not, not to say that I haven't been really fortunate and lucky, but it's it's not easy put it that way but um when i went to nascad right out of high school when i graduated in 1995 i think i wanted to do i thought i wanted to do graphic design i was like i want to be a designer and i didn't even you know the, the the first thing you do in NASCAD in your first year is this course called Foundation, which basically just kind of like sprinkles mm-hmm. all of these varied um, possible ways of doing stuff at you. And it's kind of, it's a bit of a weeding out process. So it's to see who who's who's here and taking it seriously, and who's just fucking around and thinking they can just blow through uh, sure. and not do anything. So a lot of people kind of drop off before Foundation year ends. And I had, you know, I was, I was young and stupid still. And I remember having one of these like real epiphany moments where I basically tried to bullshit my way out of, out of not having done an assignment. And the, the prof at the time was just, was not going to have any of it. And without, you know, blowing up or, or embarrassing me uh, in front of my peers just with a few words just basically turned this mirror on to my face and said you're so fucking full of shit okay. and that was the moment when i actually realized that wow i i really am full of shit <laughs> and, and then, then i just i just didn't pull that stuff anymore i think we all have those moments depending on who we are and what we're doing 
Right. We were recounting that exact moment with my daughter just the other day, actually. Right. Because um, she's in first year Concordia right now. Okay. She's doing it from home. Like, it's just like, again, what a, what a non-university experience. It's just, it's so... Yeah. And I look back on my days at NASCAD as definitely five of the best years of my life. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so going back, I wanted to do graphic design. So uh, I think the first, after first year I started doing stuff, I just tried shit like intermedia and where you, you learn about, uh, whatever advertising and, and dataism and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I really didn't, my, my Achilles heel at, at art school was, was my art histories. I didn't, I didn't finish them. I'm three credits shy of a BFA. Right. And cause I dropped out before I was officially done to go tour around with Sloan, mm-hmm. which I don't regret at all, but I do kind of regret not having that piece of paper. If it says I got a BFA from NASCA. Sure. But I, I just wanted to do work. I just wanted to be in my studio. And back then, you could you have twenty four hour access to the school. Yeah. So when I when I when I was working through these different programs and and meeting a lot of a lot of really cool people and a lot of really arrogant, uh, shitty people, like anywhere. But you sift through that and you gravitate to the ones that you, uh, that you're attracted to and, and stick with them. And I'm still good friends with a lot of people I went through art college with. And I was doing, I was doing printmaking for a while, which I really loved because it was so technical. Hmm. And when you're in it, when you have all these facilities at your fingertips, um, you, you just take for granted that I can just go here. I can come here and make lithographs or uh, intaglio prints talking 24-7. No mm. problem. We got everything here. And then this guy, Gerald Ferguson, who was the uh, one of the guys who transformed the school in the 60s, was still there as president. And just as, as an, an aside to that, Gerald Ferguson was the father of Doug E. Fresh Ferguson, who was the other white component of Oreo reverse. Aha. Okay. There we go. Yeah. I was good friends with, with Doug in when I met him at QEH when I went there. Right. And, um, I met Jerry a few times and he was, you know, Jerry was a very clunky old bastard. Um, but he was really, uh, he was very persuasive. Okay. And so going back to, I was doing these printmaking workshops and Jerry had a, he had a, he had an, a zinc plate of this series of prints that he, he made, but he wanted it etched a little deeper because it wasn't dark enough on the, on the print. So I was the studio technician in the intaglio department at that time. And I did it for him. And then he just pulled me aside after and said, so what do you think after you get out of, uh, school, you're going to have access to fucking 2,000 pound presses and uh, mm. giant limestone slabs you have to wheel around with a fucking forklift. Right. Come do my intro painting course. Uh, he said it's light, it's portable, and you can 
literally do it until the day you drop dead. And that was the, another kind of wake up moment for me. It was like, wow, you're so right. I'm not going to fucking be able to do any of this shit. And I reluctantly went to do uh, intro painting and I never looked back. Hmm. I, and I really, I was so resistant to doing painting as kind of just this cliched art school uh, theme that I wanted to avoid. But I, obviously I was just uh, kidding myself. Right. It's interesting how points in our life, you know, like one decision made just, you know, dominoes into a whole lifetime of, you know, things that like, you know, outcomes and so on. Like, I mean, I kind of going back to the beginning where I was talking about, uh, you know, you being my favorite musician and seeing you live and stuff. For me personally, like seeing you in 96 was my sort of like domino moment where I wanted to play drums. And then that led into being in this band and moving to Toronto and meeting my wife and blah, 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 blah. You know, so like, it's funny how life works like that, you know. And so other than, you know, taking that painting course, are there any other that you can think of immediately, like just sort of like choices that were made that you really feel like echoed through time in a really major way? Um, yeah. When I, when I first started taking guitar lessons, that was also uh, a total game changer. And, and I, I didn't take up the guitar until I was about 16 years old. Mm-hmm. It was a couple of years after my, father passed away and he had a guitar I, you know i inherited this this beautiful 1957 gibson j45 from mm-hmm. him but i was never allowed to play it when he was alive because it was so his baby and obviously i was not to be trusted with it as a clumsy uh, teenager and i totally respected that um again my mother bought me she bought me a guitar for christmas one year it was a, a Les Paul shaped Ibanez 59er cream colored mm-hmm. guitar. And then I had this little trainer amp and, and I started taking guitar lessons at the same place that Jay Ferguson took guitar lessons This place in Dartmouth. I believe I might be mistaken. About that. Okay. Um, and this teacher was so great because I, I took piano when I was a kid and I would always come come back after the lesson to do whatever I had to do. And I would play the thing that I had to play. But my, my piano teacher, when, when I was young, knew that I wasn't reading music because I could never read the music. It was like uh, hieroglyphics to me. But I could learn it by ear. And that's how I play everything. Is I'm a total ear learner, as a lot of people are. And anyway, I was kicked out of piano at a at like six years old because my teacher was so frustrated. She just couldn't understand why I couldn't uh, read the music. So she couldn't, she couldn't teach me, which was fine. And then this guy who I took guitar lessons from, he would be like, well, just bring, bring something in that you want to learn how to play. And I'll write it out in, in, uh, in this sort of tab form. And that, again was also kind of like hmm. a revelation that he could do that and this guy was total ear learner too and he could play fucking anything i brought in so i remember the first thing i brought in was this french metal band france french and they were called trust <laughs> and uh the song i the song was called Répression, I believe. <laughs> first track first track side a 
and there's this guitar solo that that i i thought was just so fucking cool and i wanted to learn how to play it and i i brought in this little cassette my teacher just he played it back instantly uh exactly as it sounded on the tape wow and then and then wrote it out for me to figure out um so yeah that was pretty that was pretty special little transitional period for me and then i just i just went home i would run home every day after school and lock myself in my bedroom and try to figure out straight cat songs and stuff was there a moment do you remember like i mean i'm kind of in the same boat too like kind of learning by ear and i i remember playing drums and feeling that i wasn't there yet you know i remember playing with other people and kind of feeling like i'm a few steps behind them maybe or i could yeah. kind of feel my um, by the way limitations you're an incredible drummer uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is my face red um but yeah i mean like there, there is a transition though where we go from you know kind of feeling that limitation to sort of coming into our own. And I don't know if, if for you, those two things happened at the same time with guitar and drums. Um, but do you, do you recall that at all? Do you remember there t- being a time where you kind of felt comfortable in what you were doing and maybe even perhaps playing with other people? Um, yeah. I mean, I was, you know, when I first started playing with other people, I was extremely fragile and, terrified of uh embarrassment or humiliation like any of anybody anybody would i mean i've felt that that same fear um like a year and a half ago playing with a band i've been in for 30 years like i'm i still have imposter syndrome and Mm -hmm. and uh i'm a fraud complex and, and I'm lying to all these people. I'm not, I'm not being truthful. I still feel that from time to time. Um, but when, when I was young and just starting out, like, I guess there was so much, so much more fun and potential discovery and, and creativity that, that was so new that you just kind of, you roll with it and hope for the best Mm. um and i played with a lot of people actually oreo reverse was not my first musical it was my it was arguably my first live performance in front of uh more than 12 people but i had i had a band called general alarm okay we never played any shows um and we would practice in in my friend's basement. That was our first band. We made t-shirts. Great band name. It the band names, one. the band names in the early Andrew Scott career. <laughs> I have furious George as, as well on the list. Uh, yeah. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. What was, what was the story behind furious George? Well, when I first met Chris Murphy, I was the DJ at another club called the club Flamingo. In right. right. Legendary. And Chris and Jay, and a guy, Henry Sangalang, they had a band called Carney Lake Road, and they would play at this club um, often. And I thought they were incredible. They were so, so ahead of their time for Halifax in the 80s. Weird, Minutemen-derived three-piece. Mm-hmm. And uh, Chris and I shared, certainly uh, uh, with Public Enemy, 
uh, being a mutual favorite. We shared a lot of musical um, sensibilities, I guess. And that would have been, that was the band where I kind of, I tried my hand at playing the the drums. Mm. And I knew, you know, Chris was a pretty, uh, pretty confident drummer at that time with County Like Road and other bands that he had been in. Um, We just sort of struck a friendship and just started to, you want to play some music together and just fuck around? And so we did. And then, you know, there, here's the perfect example of, you know, Chris Murphy and you know, his, 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 uh, personality and his sense of humor, his sort of tough love sense of humor. He was a relentless kind of jokey critic of my early drumming style and whatever is there. There's an example of either develop a kind of a thick skin and don't take shit too seriously and just plow through it. Or you could get take total offense. It's like, fuck you. I'm leaving. That never, (laughs) never got to that. But of course, I mean, I was, I was terrible. We're all terrible when we first begin things and then you practice and you learn. So then pretty shortly after that, Chris and I and another friend, a guy named John Goodrich, decided John's got a bunch of songs and Chris has a bunch of songs. Let's let's see if we can play them and just go up to his bedroom and his parents' house or this apartment that he lived in or Hmm. whatever. And we decided there was a it was almost like an open mic. There were all kinds of all kinds of places for gigs to happen in Halifax in those days it was pretty rich with with possible spaces sure and so at dalhousie university in the in the student union building there's the green room and then Mm. every every weekend if you wanted there you could basically just put on a punk rock show Mm. and have six bands play and uh, a bunch of people would inevitably come out like live music was always a an attractive option in Halifax for, for a lot of people. And that would have been the first time where I was basically shitting my pants with, with terror of ex- completely exposing myself as <laughs> a full on. But, but we did it. We pulled off a show and then we, I think we were, we were called furious George for that first show. And then we had another show and we decided let's let's change our name. So then we became we became the despots. Mm-hmm. And then we became clothesline for the next show. <laughs> and then we became right arm for the next show. And I'm pretty sure that right arm was the last gig for that outfit. All right. I might be wrong. What genre of music was this? Would you, how would you describe it? It was very quirky, um, very quirky kind of, not quite as, as, as smooth as television. It's like, Mm. but in that, in that realm, it was a hard one to, to peg down, but most of the songs were John's and they were, they were great. And I was just, I was just, again, I was just learning at that time. 
I didn't even think about where does this music come from or where, where are you getting your ideas? It's just mm-hmm. like, I just, just play music with other people. It was so organic and, and fun and unencumbered by anything other than, well, I got to go home for dinner. And speaking of playing music with other people, I recall in, I think it was 97, we've talked about this on the pod before, like I went to the Opera House to see Thrush Hermit and it could have been uh, Local Rabbits, I think is maybe on the bill as well, and a band called the Brown Belts. And I yep. did like a double take <laughs> when I see the drummer, it's you. And there's yeah. another there's another example of, you know, you're talking about all these early bands and they have one band name. And if somebody sees that, if somebody sees a poster for that, like 30 years later, they're like, I wonder whatever happened to those guys. Mm-hmm. You know, so Brown Belts is one where I'm just like, who was that? I don't even, I remember that one show. And, and also I remember around the time seeing the Maker's Mark being a band too. And these yep. are two names in my mind that were associated with you. Uh, do you have any info on those? Obviously you do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Maker's Mark came came first before brown belts uh when when sloan kind of kind of decided to call it quits uh in heavy quotes in 94 95 there was a for for me and i think probably for everybody there seemed like there was this huge kind of like sigh of relief like we had just been when we started uh playing and touring and and getting signed and all that. It was just, it it seemed like we were just kind of pushed off into the deep end without even really knowing who we were ourselves or as peers or brothers or whatever. And we just went, we went so hard and so deep that it burnt us all out Mm -hmm. to the point of just being so frustrated uh, about everything. And obviously right at that time too, it was, it was, the whole business model of the major label world was a giant Titanic going down as we were just coming into it. So again, there's a, a, the learning curve was vertical for us all. And I think it was too much too soon and we needed a, a break. And, and, and at that time we decided to call it a breakup. And there was, a, I guess a year and a half or so, where Sloan was not a part of my uh, day-to-day concern when I was living here in Toronto with my wife, mm-hmm. Donna. Uh, we lived above uh, the record store Rotate This when it used to be on Queen and at, at Markham. And two doors down for me was uh, Dallas Good from the Sadies. Mm-hmm. And the Sadies had just kind of just formed around that time too. And they had a drummer. It was, at that time, the Sadies was just Dallas and Sean Dean and um, this guy, Andrew. I can't, um, his last name's escaping me. Anyway, Andrew had to bail for what, whatever reason. And Dallas and I were, were friends. And, and he was like, do you want to just come and play drums on some stuff? And I'm like, sure. So I would go and play with Dallas and Sean and the Sadies in their earliest incarnation was basically uh, instrumental metal, more or less. Okay. Sean, Sean played a, uh, an electric bass. <clears throat> Dallas was just this crazy, lanky character, really loud guitar. Mm-hmm. And the songs were like these slow kind of dirge uh, 
jams. Right. And, and we started playing a couple of shows. And so all of a sudden I'm playing drums on the side with, uh, the Sadie's. And that was, again, it was super fun and super eye opening to, to having played with Chris and Jay and Patrick for this intensive period of a couple of years or whatever, playing with other people and just seeing how those dynamics can, can play out. Um, then pretty shortly after we played a couple of shows, Dallas's brother, Travis kind of started sitting in and Travis was, he was, so scary when you first meet him because he just looks like an axe murderer. And he's a very intense guy. He's a super sweetheart, but he's really intimidating at first. And when he starts to play an instrument, the intimidation factor goes through the roof because right. the guy is a virtuoso player. Mm-hmm. And anyway, he started playing. But before that, yeah, the Sadies did a bunch of recordings with, with uh, Jad Fair. Jad Fair came to Toronto, and we did. We made like, just made made up all these songs literally on the spot, mm-hmm. um, and did about probably thirteen, fourteen songs. And Jad Fair doesn't play anything, right? Like he he has a guitar on, but it's not plugged in when he's when he sings, and he I. I guess he just makes up these words as it's kind of stream of consciousness, weird shit. And I have a tape of it somewhere, but I have no idea where it is. Anyway, that happened. And then Travis kind of started playing with us. The jab fair thing was a bit of a one-off. I think Dallas used to do other stuff with him. Dallas would get his, his fingers in a lot of different things eventually. Um, uh, so, so Travis joins the band and very slowly because Travis was, was, was playing primarily with the good brothers, their father and uncle's band, which was total country music. Mm. The, the country vibe kind of crept in right. in the eighties. And at, at a certain point, my wife Fiona would, would be part of that band and she would, be uh, a, a vocalist on certain tunes and again it was just it was really it was a fun free time of there's no there's no business model there's no managers there's no tours there's no uh we're always sleeping in our own bed every night and it was a nice it was just a nice diversion and then the maker's mark kind of grew out of that as an as another sort of well, let's just try something. And we play with with Mike Belitsky, who's now the current drummer for the Sadies. Mike and I uh, knew each other when he was, used to play drums for the Jellyfish Babies. So when I first moved right. to Toronto, I, I lived with those guys, and I would travel around with them. I used to do lights for the Jellyfish Babies at that club, like whatever the Sydney and the 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 rivoli or all these all these old toronto clubs that are long gone and that yeah maker's mark we did i think we did about five shows we we made it 
We did do a trip across to the Halifax pop explosion. Okay. Um, it was, it was fun, but it was also, I think it was around the time when, when Sloan was trying to put one court to another together. And I guess it just, it just sort of fell apart. And Mike was also playing drums for, uh, jail or the V's. Mm-hmm. Alice was playing with other people. He was playing with, uh, the band Phonocomb, which was kind of the, the shadowy men on a shadowy planet, uh, post their existence. So there's, you know, there's so much overlap that again, was never really, was never really questioned or too overthought. It was just like, yeah, you want to do a, want to play a show, a Brown belt show at the Cameron house. Fuck. Sure. What Tuesday night in front of 25 people. Brown belts was, was myself in Dallas. And this guy, Greg Timoshenko from the Leather Uppers. And that was super fun. Again, just so, so, uh, no, no overthinking. It was just, let's do a show. Let's make up these songs. And what do we call it? Brown Belts. Perfect. I love it. So you're living with the Jellyfish Babies. Is this, I've heard, uh, I've heard you mention it in the past where you're uh, either there, there's a drum kit there and you're kind of playing along to the Minutemen. Mm. Is that true? Yeah. Double nickels on the dime. Would, would yeah. that, would that be a connection? Maybe like a, kind of going backwards a little bit. Cause I assume you're a Minuteman fan prior to that, but um, do you, would that have been a connection maybe to the Carney Lake road guys? Like when you see them, you kind of recognize that maybe that same influence. Well, Carney Lake road would have introduced me to the Minuteman. Oh, I see. Okay. For sure. I didn't, yeah. I wasn't aware of them. I mean, I, you know, I was, Another band that was a, a total life changer for me was Husker Du when I heard them and went went deep with them. And I, you know, I went i I knew my I knew my punk rock labels, the SSTs and the Blast First and the, and the Dutch East Indias or whatever you want. I was always attracted to the labels. I would make T-shirts, my own T-shirts, my SST shirt. Yes. I actually made one just this past summer again. Um, and I made a Husker Du shirt that my wife still wears to bed. Fantastic. Yeah. Is it, is it plaid or is it, is it actually the Husker Du logo? It's just the Husker Du logo and just in stark black Sharpie. That's great. Cause I remember uh, recently I got a, I got a chance. I wasn't there live. Obviously I, I wouldn't see you guys for another, another year, but edge fest 95, you guys, a part of your set, you, you cover mission to Burma. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, it was just a why not yeah <laughs> and even uh what was it uh, 98 at the at the ottawa canada today show i remember seeing it on tv for the longest time and just there's a moment where the uh, the the film begins and you guys are in the middle of some other song before you actually begin the proper set for tv and, and you guys are playing motorhead over yeah. the top and, and at the time i had no idea what song that was i was just like <laughs> what are these guys playing you know i loved it yeah that was pretty fun just just start the start the set with, with that <laughs> um, nice way to get warmed up yeah and and about five minutes after that song was played this the sky i could see the sky was a dark green yeah. black just coming directly down the pipeline straight at the stage and then thunder and light all hell broke loose right shortly after that that was the uh that was the point in time at which my teenage love interest of the time pushed me into the bushes to drink a kokanee 
And I think we missed the rest of the Sloan set. So I don't count that as my official first Sloan show. Yeah, for, I think for good reasons. The rest of the set was literally rained out. I don't believe we went back out to play. Just, <laughs> our time was up. So we got to play a Motorhead tune and maybe three quarters of a Sloan song. So circling back to early songwriting, and you mentioned, so uh, with the Oreo Reverse, um, were, were any of these songs yours? Like, were you kind of writing your guitar part? Do you have a recollection of maybe the first time lyrics and music kind of came together and in a band? Lyrics have always been my my biggest problem with music. I, I, I never listened to lyrics. I couldn't, I could play you um, probably anything just by figuring it out. But if you ask me to sing one line of, of a flying burrito brothers tune or a cash song, I, I do not have a clue. I forget the words to my own songs regularly. Um, so lyrics have always been t- so secondary for me. Mm-hmm. Like even I, I, I'm a huge fan of Bob Dylan, but I'm not listening to his words. I'm just listening to the music. Right. Um, which uh, my wife finds endlessly frustrating because she knows the words to everything. Um, yeah, Oreo Reverse was kind of, it was pretty Dougie fresh driven. He was the one who had the, the little rolling beatbox in his bedroom and the drum kit. And I, I was the one with the guitar. And my guitar part from that was a was a mashup of king of rock by run dmc and uh the the solo the guitar solo section was pretty much note for note um rumble and brighton by straight cats hmm. over uh over <laughs> like really basic beatbox like so it was so corny the rock the rock and hip-hop combo we had the uh the cachet of Tyrone TIC totally in control Williams as the, he was the main MC. So we were, we, we were legit in, in that circle. And Tyrone and I played basketball together. Um, he went on to have, he's got like, I think four Super Bowl rings. Uh, he was an incredible football player. The Tyrone Williams. Yeah. Wow. That That was TIC. So what are the chances, I mean, the, 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 the Sloan account just this past week, obviously happy 30th anniversary, February okay. 8th. And, uh, they posted the first show, you know, the library, yeah. the, uh, the show in the cafeteria there. And is there, you know, what are the chances we're going to see an Oreo reverse video pop up online? Is, is there, is there any chance of that? Um, if you want to go dig around for it, be my guest. I mean, I'm not going to go looking for it. I know there's <laughs> footage because Chris Murphy, when I, when it was revealed that I was part of that, he's, he saw it on, on Halifax cable 10 had, had, uh, played it one night just out of nowhere. And, and he had seen it at, at home. I don't know why he was watching Halifax cable 10, <laughs> but he said that he saw it and he, said he, he was, his mind was blown. And we I want to have, yeah, we didn't know each other. I want to have my, my mind blown. So we'll have to, we'll have to look for that. <laughs> yeah, look at that. I've, got a, I've got a good picture that my my daughter is pretty she's she's been passing it around to her friends it's pretty funny 
<laughs> Amazing. So you're, you mentioned your, your kind of affinity for Stray Cats, Rockabilly stuff. I can't what? help but wonder, did this influence your purchase of your Gretsch Country Gentleman at a later point in time? 100%. When, when did you acquire the guitar? Uh, when we were recording one chord to another. Yeah, I think it was around that. Shortly after that record got made. Right. I, got it at, I bought it here in, in Toronto at the 12th fret. Okay. It's a 1962, 6120 Chet Atkins model. Right. And the F holes are fake. They're, they're painted. They're not actually, it's not, it is a hollow, semi-hollow body, but it's not a hollow, hollow body. Right. Um, and I, and initially I wanted the single cutaway, just like what Brian Setzer would play. Sure. Yeah. But my friends, uh, a guy named Tim Brennan, who lives in Halifax, he's a photographer instructor at NASCAD. Mm-hmm. Now he used to play in a band called the Lone Stars, which was very early eighties, uh, rockabilly band that I would go see. And Mike Belisky was the drummer for the Lone Stars. That's kind of where I sort of started to know. Mike and, and Tim played that exact same guitar that I have. So that okay. it was probably more Tim Brennan inspired than, than Brian Setzer ultimately. But um, yeah, I, I had, I had pictures of Brian Setzer in my locker in high school. Wow. Just wow. to look at his guitar. <laughs> I'd love to, I'd love to take it back for a second. You mentioned NASCAD again, and this, I've been thinking about this for a little bit and leading up to our discussion today. Um, is it safe to say that there are a lot of parallels between your artist affinities and Gerhard Richter, the German artist? I'm thinking about, I remember going to the the museum in Cologne a few years ago and seeing oh, this, this giant wall of portraits of his, for, they're called 48 portraits. Mm-hmm. And it just, it just came to me now that maybe, and you know, there is, there seems to be sort of visually similarities between between both of you is is it safe to assume that he had an influence on on your on your painting style as well a hundred percent yeah first time i went to new york again i was at the guggenheim i was just starting uh just starting painting and i remember again gerald ferguson when he said in his intro painting class he said if anybody goes to new york before you finish my intro painting class i'm not looking at any of your work i'm not (laughs) not even going to look at it. So after I finished intro, got into the first studio painting course, I went to New York and I went to, you know, you go to all the museums when you're an art student, it's a, it's a must. And at the, at the Guggenheim, there was a show of, of new German painters. So it was like uh, Marcus Lupertz and, Georg Baslitz and their Gerhard Richter. I'm not right. pronouncing them with a very German accent. Sorry that you're uh, in Germany. No disrespect. No, no worries. But, uh, yeah, these were these were um, landscape paintings, and they okay. were they weren't particularly uh, massive, but they sure as hell weren't small, and they were stunning. Just blurry, blurry photographs of these gorgeous uh, country landscapes, but they weren't photographs. They were paintings. So uh, yeah, I was, I was turned on to Richter really early and never looked back. And he's just one of a number of 
of uh, artists who's who's has influenced my certainly my visual art career totally uh, massively. It's you know I like to say on this show that the circle is small because there are so many small world things that we experience when we, when, we, when we get talking in depth about some of our topics, but. I'm, when I think about Gerhard Richter, I have this picture in my head, and you might know it, of him standing on a construction site on Barrington Street in Halifax, holding one of his Halifax paintings because he was a guest lecturer at NASCAP in the, in the 70s. Yeah, he, he, taught, he taught for a year at NASCAP. Before, before coming back here to Düsseldorf. So it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's a small world thing. And how, like, in terms of creative processes, what's for you the difference between a, f- a finished piece of visual art, so a finished painting and a finished song? Um, that's a hard, hard one for me to describe. Certainly with, uh, with the music, especially if we're recording, at a point you have to just say that it's, it's done. Right. Just to, for time, time sensitivity. With a painting, I mean, I could say any of these things are done or I could keep working on them till the cows come home. Mm. There's just a, there's for me anyway, it's a, it's a bit more of a, let the painting let you know when it's done as opposed to me deciding kind of, I do, I do feel like in terms of how my brain works, the 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 music and the and the visual are are two sides of my coin whatever that means right right um i can't really explain how i come up with this or that uh i just gravitate to to what i gravitate to and try something like and certainly since this lockdown came almost a year ago um there there was a period where because because Sloan kind of took me away from art school, and I never wanted to be in a band when I was a kid, really. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be uh, an artist, not realizing as a kid that music is also an art. And some, some people might uh, consider it the, actually the highest form of art. Um, I didn't really see it coming. It was, I tripped over the band. I think we all sort of tripped over it and it was it was so again we were just thrown into this this vertical kind of living situation where we had to figure out who we were at the same time um honoring this music that we all come up with and because painting is is a solo effort, I guess it's it's so much it's so much easier or harder, depending on what side of the bed I wake up on, for me to approach it. You know, like the band is 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 a, a four headed monster. There's 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 always been too many cooks in that kitchen, but somehow we've figured out how to how to make it work. Hmm. And I think what I, what I was trying to get at was. I res- I resented the band, or I resented my choice to devote my life to the band for a long time because it took took me away from my ability to make painting. Hmm. 
and I would pick, you know, I have, I've had studios that are heated and, uh, don't have fucking snow blown in the door, which were very comfortable and really, really productive workspaces in my life. And that, that, that was before I had kids. So when my wife and I had our first, uh, kid, our daughter, we bought a house, uh, miraculously we we got it a house for like two hundred and eighty thousand dollars in downtown toronto it was like at the time i was like what are you crazy that's insane so expensive (laughs) i'm not gonna elaborate on that yeah and it had a a two-car garage that i was looking at and i was like but I didn't really consider we bought the place in the summer. I never really considered a brutalizing winter and the, the mm-hmm. length I would have to go to actually winterize this space. Like anything, it's just money. Maybe one day I will. Uh, but for now I just bundle up and yeah. kind of like the challenge of it. So it was literally this time last year that I kind of, I, when 2020 was, was rung in on new year's eve i was so optimistic and so psyched that was like 2020 perfect vision this is going to be such a fucking awesome year (laughs) and we had just come off we had been on a very very lengthy kind of series of tours for this Mm -hmm. baby blues reissue that uh, as you know got kind of shut down um and one of the one of the tours was really, really difficult for all, all all of us, but some more than others, like incredibly um, fraught. Mm-hmm. So we kind, kind of regrouped, came home, you know, November, December into January, all had Christmas and New Year's at home with our families and whatever. Everybody kind of got back into this this headspace of all right we're going out in february we got to go out like this time last year we got a bunch more shows to do down in the states and we've got to make up some shows that we had had, had to cancel so the the just the mere notion of getting in a van or on a tour bus or even get going to the airport or getting in a car in february in this this country is a, kind of a nightmare scenario mm-hmm. so i wasn't really looking too forward to it um but i knew we were heading down south and we were going to be like down in florida and texas and there would be warmer places and we'd be home in march um but i had just started uh, after january 1st i decided i'm going to make some paintings just because i haven't really done it in a while and i thought you know i've been painting over the years i've been painting these blue dogs like a lot of a lot of people, anybody who knows me and my my work will probably immediately associate me with these blue dogs. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the first, the first blue dogs that I had done were for were for for a a show I had in at NASCAD in nineteen ninety one of seventeen portraits of these blurry blue dogs with just a bare canvas background. Right. right. <laughs> And they, I called the show 48 Portraits. And they were d- directly associated with, with 
Richter. And it wasn't even my idea to call them 48 portraits. There was a woman named Jessica Held, who was also a really talented painter who was in our studio class. Mm-hmm. When I was trying to think about when we were doing a crit or a critique of, of the, the work before it was hung, I was like, I'm not sure what I should call it. She was like, why don't you just call it 48 portraits? <laughs> like, that is fucking awesome. Done. Um, and I got, I, I got sort of so involved with these, uh, every time I come back to get a chance to paint a, paint a blue dog and paint another mm-hmm. blue dog, I started getting down on myself for just like relying on this comfort zone or whatever. So I would try a whole bunch of other approaches to, to work. But then last January, I was just, I just said to myself, I can remember, I can remember saying, I don't want to be this painter who just paints those blue dogs. Mm -hmm. Actually, I am that fucking guy who paints those fucking blue dogs. And I'm going to go out in the garage. It's minus fucking 30. (laughs) And I'm going to paint a blue dog. And then I'm going to do another one. And then I'm going to do another one. And it was just such a a positive reintroduction into some kind of, some kind of uh, intentional practice. Mm. And then I had to break it off again to go on the road in February. And again, I was really, really not looking forward to it. Certainly in hindsight of, of how rough that last leg was for us. Hmm. Um, anyway, turns out the, that February run was arguably, I, and I, I'm probably sure you could get a unanimous um, arms raise for this. It was probably the most enjoyable time we, as a group of people doing this thing together, have ever had uh playing doing our job Hmm. like it was the funnest most positive everybody was on the same page everybody was was doing good work everybody was getting along it was so so enjoyable and then covid hit right and then it was pretty pretty clear that well uh as soon as i heard about it i was like i mentally started putting my headspace into i'm going to be here for 2 years this is going to go on for 2 years we're already at year 1 yeah and we're nowhere near out of the woods yet i'm not going to be doing my day job anytime soon right so I really, I just, I, I dove into making uh, art over the past year and just haven't, haven't really stopped. And I've been really fortunate to have been able to sell a bunch of, of work to stay afloat. It's been sure. a very, very, very fortunate situation. And it's kind of, I haven't turned my back on music, but I really haven't. Early on in quarantine, I, I would have a drum set set up in my house my wife and i often just make up songs together she has awesome tunes hmm. um, we would just make little garage band recordings and stuff but i really haven't had my head has not been in a musical uh space for yeah for al- almost a year 
but I know, I mean, I know I'm not going to abandon it. Not at all. But, you know, I think about life after this thing disappears and I, I don't want to just go back to where, where we were. I don't think any of us do. I think we want to go to uh, this new opportunity, whatever that means. There's a lot of, a lot of shit we, we can't refer to as normal to go back to. Mm. Yeah. It's been a weird time. I, I have a couple of friends who I uh, found out after the fact, like they would take pictures on Instagram, obviously. And I would see, and I'd be like, that really looks like an Andrew painting. And I asked mm. them about it. And sure enough, they just direct messaged you and purchased one. So yeah. for anybody, anybody listening, is that kind of the primary way people go about doing that? Is that a, an appropriate approach? Absolutely. That's the, that's the way I've been, uh, you know, Instagram for me, one of the greatest things I've done over this quarantine lockdown pandemic is I've quit Facebook I'm completely. That is out of my life. Um, another thing I started doing is lifting weights, which Ken, I know you'll, you'll, uh, You'll recognize <laughs> that as a, a good thing. And my, I can thank my giant 17-year-old son for modeling this dedicated, <laughs> full-on weightlifting home gym situation. It's great. Um, but the other thing that I've been doing is, like you said, selling work just through Instagram, which is fantastic. But mm. it also has me just turning to Instagram way too much just to see if there's, Oh Jesus, is there a request or did somebody send me a a message for this or that? You know, I'm not like desperate salivating over this thing, but it has become this, this weird uh, business tool for me now Yeah, that, that, that straddles a fine line between uh, useful and just, time suck sure which, which that's the part of it that i find really uh hard hard to hard to fully control yeah you know again i know i'm not alone no i mean if you're if you're at home all the time left to your own devices then it becomes yeah. very tempting to check every five seconds if something new has happened yeah, it's such, a, it's such a, a cultural illness that we've created for ourselves right you got a lot of time on your hands sometimes you you know you ask a friend to start a podcast with you about your favorite band you know just weird stuff happens yeah no i mean but that's that's great you guys are doing something uh something of of value that obviously you you both care about and i appreciate it amazing I guess maybe one thing, I know that we we have a number of listeners who are from the GTA and I'm I'm happy in calling it the GTA. What, you know, you've been in the in in the city for I mean altogether pretty much 30 years. What I mean maybe 27 28. What are your favorite things about Toronto as a place to live? Um the alleyways are probably first and foremost one of my favorite things so we didn't have those in Halifax at all. Right. So I love the alleyways, uh, especially for cycling. Like when my kids were young and starting to go off out into the world on their own on bikes, my, my rules were like, stay the fuck off of Queen Street, never <laughs> ride on Dover Court, 
ever uh don't ride on board don't ride, just stay off the main drags take yeah. one way or alleys and you can get from point a to point b and they both they're both uh seasoned urban vets in that regard um the other thing i just loved about it was uh i it was just a, a different place to to try from halifax like i i when i was at school in halifax before the band took off and started touring i knew that there was there was probably probably going to be a move somewhere where i didn't know i mean when i was there i was at the time it would be like i want to live in new york city oh my god i would love to live in new york city today i would never want to live there like sure my favorite part of going to new york city now is leaving <laughs> I, even though i still love the city i just i couldn't imagine ever living there hmm. um and you know the other thing the other biggest attraction was my wife was here going to Ryerson hmm. theater school. and we were living together in Halifax um, before that. And I wanted to be with her. So I'm, and I had moved here. First time I moved to Toronto was in 1988. I came up for a summer. Right. And live, I lived that, I lived at Fort. I lived in a room in a in a shared apartment at fourteen fifteen fourteen fifty Dundas East, mm-hmm. Dundas and Don Lands. Okay, and I was like, "Wow, this is pretty far from, <laughs> from downtown," but it was cheap and it was fine for a little while, and there, there were always stretch limousines like it was a pretty rough little stretch of dundas there was nothing mm-hmm. but a laundromat a corner store and there were all these stretch limousines like three doors up from this place i lived in and i was always wondering like jesus am i living next to uh some kind of crime family here and it took me weeks to figure out it was just a limousine service <laughs> <laughs> But I was kind of freaked out because I was so green from living in Halifax, which comparatively is way rougher. Oh yeah, than Toronto. I've never yeah. felt. Uh, I've never felt even remotely uh, threatened here. Hmm. Halifax. I've been chased by five dudes. Like seriously. Hmm. Um. So shortly after I moved here, then I then I moved to Richmond and. And Bathurst to live in a house with the jellyfish babies, and that, mm-hmm. that was kind of the first first foray into living in truly downtown Toronto. And it was just there was just so much that didn't exist in Halifax at the right. time for a youngster, um, and a lot you know whatever a lot of the a lot of the attractive aspects are no longer here for a number of reasons but even if they were i probably wouldn't be there anymore anyway you know when you're young and living living in a big city trying to figure things out you you're hopefully just having fun 
you know, I remember I've always had a dog. I've always had dogs or a dog here. I can remember I've all, I've walked a dog at Trinity Bellwoods Park pretty much every day for 30 years. Last few years, not so much because of the Coachellification of Trinity Bellwoods. <laughs> I remember nobody, there would be nobody at Bellwoods mm. on the most beautiful summer days. Nobody, but a, maybe a couple of people playing baseball and tennis players and a few dogs. But it's uh, it's kind of incredible what's happened to it in terms of its. But I guess you know it's all it's all the the high rise condo yeah. single people who have no access to outside except their tiny little balcony. I mean, I yeah. get it. I've been curious, certainly with the topics that we brought up on the podcast. Um, you know, getting into analyzing your music and talking about different songwriting and getting into you know the, the various. Um, how would you say, like the, the various archetypes of songs, you know, whether they be something that is a little more random and kind of pulling words. And we've talked about maybe that being akin to the painting style and you're kind of like, don't know what it is until you kind of step back and look at it versus taking a photo and, and a lyrical photo, if you will, of a memory. Uh, we've talked on the show about a song like I Know You, you know, something that's clearly very personal and perhaps a memory of a specific time and place. Um, so maybe I don't know if you could speak to that a little bit um, in terms of writing and how that kind of comes about. Well, that song specifically is a is a textbook example of it's there's no memory, there's no uh, personal connection to anything. It's just bullshit. It's all it's all just putting words together. There's no actual story line that that uh, refers to any real life experience in that song. Um, well, you fooled think, us. <laughs> well, I guess that I get gets back to my lyrics as a, as the, the last thing that I, that I work on when I'm writing music. And I do, I just try to, I literally throw, uh, things together. I'll steal stuff from, from this person or that person. And hope that you can come to some kind of backdoor association. Like it's once the song's written and released, it's out of my hands and it's up. Anybody can interpret it any way they want. The only song that the only song I think in my entire life of making music that, that was truly based on uh, two people was people of the sky. Hmm. That was, that was pretty directly well now there's a couple others but that was probably the first the first time i wrote a song about something that actually happened maybe just continuing on this on this theme i don't like the word influences per se because i feel as though that's almost like denigrating to the person themselves when talking about their music but you know i've heard i've heard varying uh references to can to pretty things to uh even like you were quite upfront about your love for the everly brothers at certain points in your career if there would be like one artist or one band that stood out where you said, this person stopped me in my tracks for the way that they write songs. And I want to be like this person or like this band, who would that be? Uh, Rick white from elevator. 
Eric's trip, maybe. I mean, I, I think you mentioned the pretty things. I think the the band that I have most directly stolen from left and right is the pretty things mm-hmm. over the, I don't know, there's too many like there's so i have i'm so overly influenced by so many different artists and rick mm-hmm. white definitely yeah, he he just put out that uh, peppermint <laughs> cover which is so funny that just happened a couple days ago uh, i haven't heard it yet but i'm sure it's amazing <laughs> it sounds exactly like you'd expect it to the cover of Torn is, I think, my new favorite song of 2021. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah it's. I, I mean, maybe I'll never hear it. Like, it's a. It's weird for me to go and, you know, like, I was telling Rob when he approached me about doing this, and like, I find I find when, certainly when I'm leafing through the Instagram, uh, time waste, doom scroll or whatever you want. <laughs> There's a lot of there's a lot of Sloan uh, stuff that flies around, hmm. and it's not that I don't appreciate people like you guys keeping our name out in the ether, or certainly in these dark times, or anybody else. But I, it's uh, it almost makes me uncomfortable to to even look at it. You know hmm. what I mean? It's all it's almost like just going and looking in the mirror and whatever, wanting, uh, wanting to see those, the little light bubbles. When you look at yourself in the mirror, it's like, fuck Jesus, Mm. what we've come to, but it's, that's my, that's my problem. It's not that I dislike or like any of it. I, I'm, I guess I'm removed from it or I try to remove myself from it. Even with the, even with like my own bands generated Sloan music Instagram feed, like I don't go through and like every single thing. I just feel like I, I don't, I don't have to. Hmm. It's a complicated uh, existence we all share these days. Yeah, and you have your own unique uh, experience. I mean, obviously that that band is you. So I mean, you know, it'd be like if if my Instagram feed was me, just is my mom primarily sharing photos of me when I was a kid or something like my naked. Yeah. 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 I've never posted a picture of either of my kids. Yeah. Yeah. As if they're not posting enough of themselves. Right. (laughs) So again, we both appreciate your time so much. I was going to say there was a picture on Instagram a little while ago that you posted. And I think this is in your garage studio. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it just looked like a ton of CDs, like just like, a hundred CDs kind of either holding up a bookshelf or something. Is it, is it right behind you? Here. There's a whole bunch of CDs over here. So I'm thinking, I'm imagining Andrew in his studio and he's painting, you know, and I mean, am I, is it like, is it often that you do listen to music when you do that? I mean, or do you have Bob Dylan and Stray Cats and Everly's and Motorhead and Tigers <laughs> of Pantang in there? You know, I do. I have all of those. And then some, and I do listen to music. You know, I really got into uh, one of my favorite shows. If if I'm listening to the radio, if it's news, it's off. But Ideas with Nala Ayed is my favorite CBC radio thing. So I, I'll often just listen to listen to shit like that and go through the CBC listen app and go to old episodes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Awesome. But I do. I mean, I listen. I listen to a lot of music 
in here and in my house and it's everything and anything. Yeah. And, and thank you for mentioning that you kind of, in your recap earlier, sort of mentioned the thing with your dad. I'd, I'd never heard that story before. That's, in, that's insane. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, it was a tragedy, right? It was a family tragedy. Um, in a lot of ways, it really galvanized my mom and my sisters and I. Yeah. I mean, I can, at this stage, uh, with that much time having passed, you know, I feel like I've processed it pretty much not maybe not fully but and not you know. to say and not to say turning a negative into a positive but i mean am i am i being cheesy when i say that you know surrounding yourself with music and art two things that your dad was so into and loved is that in a way kind of a connection to him maybe oh totally yeah for sure yeah no i think about him i think about him every day yeah for sure especially as a father of teenage kids now right like i'm 53 he was 48 when he died so you know approaching that number for me was really was really hard on the head Mm -hmm. um and any of us can can uh see our loved ones for the last time any minute of any day just tell your tell your friends and family that you love them a lot. It's a good reminder for everybody out there listening, for sure. You know, uh, I think about that all the time. I mean, having a, a young one now, my my little guy's three, and yeah. you know, it just puts whole it puts your whole life into perspective. You know, so <laughs> I will say, I will say again, thanks so much for doing this. And 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 again, at the risk of sounding somewhat cheesy and corny, you know, on behalf of it, of the listeners of this podcast, that which there are not tons at this point although we're doing okay we're getting there thank you listener for tuning in uh and i hope you've enjoyed this conversation um but yeah for for all of the fans out there whether they're fans of music and art i don't know how you can't be a fan of both of those in your case but um i just want to say on behalf of everybody thank you for the inspiration we don't get to say it enough and obviously in a year where we don't get to see you at a show for example and say hi or whatever um just thank you for that just as a as a reminder that there are a number that there are tons of people out there who love you and love you guys as a band and derive so much inspiration from you. And um, so it's nice to remind people, you know, like you just yeah, said a moment oh, ago. That's really nice. Thank, thank you for, for spreading the gospel. So to speak. <laughs> we will continue to do so. And yeah. uh, I'm sure we'll have a 10 part uh, episode on double cross coming out soon. And uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After after the three part episode on in the movies, that's my. I have to get that one out of the way. Yeah, first. we gotta. I promised Ken when we started this podcast that we would go deep on in the movies, and maybe you can be our special guest for that one. There's another example of that. There's no story there whatsoever. <laughs> oh, there is. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right, buddy. Well, thanks again, man. I'll wrap it up there for the show. Um, and thank you for so much for your time. And uh, no, it's 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 a, it's the pleasure of my life that I even know you. So. Well, likewise. Thanks, Rob. And there it is, everybody. Sloan Cast talks to Andrew Scott. That was amazing. Ken, how are you doing, buddy? Uh, what a great conversationalist. And I hope that you out there in Sloan Cast land took as much from uh, from the talk as we did. Yeah, we're so lucky. Not only are these guys our favorite band, but 
you know, to meet any of them. They're just the greatest guys. And Andrew's such an example of that. Thank you again to him for speaking with us today. And uh, thank you for, thank you to you, the listener, for checking it out. If you're not already, you got to follow us on all the social media. We're at Sloancast everywhere. Also, uh, Murder Records Discography and the new Murder Records HQ. you got to go find and follow that as well to keep on top of everything that's coming out there. Uh, the new Tons record is coming out at the end of March. Uh, so I'm prepared for that. I'm super psyched. I love my memories. Such a great song. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time here on Sloancast. See you later. Bye-bye.